0: Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture.
1: We go, this afternoon we're going on a... Uh, turbocharged hydrofoil uh, and I'm going to be talking about a lot of women Uh, I'll write them on the board and we've got notes uh, to indicate more or less what I think I'm going to speak about if you recall last week uh, one of the things I focused on was uh, four women from the 20th century I talked about uh, Bertha Pappenheim I talked about Henrietta Zold I talked about Golda Meir and I talked about Hannah Arendt and for, the, for me, those four represented, uh, for whatever reason, four very, very uh, influential uh, women in Jewish history of the 20th century. But I did say that as soon as you were to go to a level beyond that, uh, you would open the floodgates. And uh, even just trying to be really, really strict in looking at women that made major contributions to history, either general history or Jewish history in the 20th century, uh, I couldn't it was very, very difficult to leave people out that made serious contributions, and it turns out we're going to be talking today, just in the 20th century, uh, about uh, over 22 women. That means that I can only spend three or four minutes on each. And what, I, what I'm... T- no, 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 don't worry, because really the aim of this is really to introduce us to uh, the huge scale of the involvement of women in 20th century Jewish history, and uh, it goes without saying that if any of the names that we do discuss really interest you obviously some of them I'm going to be spending more time on and some of them maybe a little less time as we as we scan through it but before I even get to those 20 m- or more women I want to make mention of a couple of women from previous stages in history uh, that I may be missed out there's two women that have come to light recently really to me in the last week one of whom was I mentioned to me by a member of uh, of the evening uh, group, uh, who said, "Have you heard of this person?" And I really didn't know much about this person, and I kind of looked into them. And that person, uh, and and the other one, was recommended in a history of Jewish women by one of the women I'm going to talk about tonight. Uh, uh, the just very. This is very quickly. Don't get confused. This is something. Uh, w- the there's a woman. Uh, amazingly, because you remember that we spoke about the 16th century as the century of the Jewish woman, and we looked at women that were coming from the the West, uh, from Spain and Portugal towards the center of the Jewish world and towards the Ottoman Empire, women like uh, Benvenita Brabanel, we looked at women like Donna Grazia, and we also looked at women in the Ottoman Empire, especially under the Vida Sultanate and so on. And we looked at this amazing century of women. Well, there's another woman that's really, really significant. We Once again, we don't have too much time, especially since today I'm talking about the 20th century. But her name is really astonishing. And when I do the 16th century again, this is going to have to be in more in-depth. But we're talking about a woman called Rivka Tiktana. Uh, from Tiktin in Poland, uh, who, <laughs> a 16th century, I mean, she dies around 1550. She is a woman who has written a book called uh, Meneket Rivka, which is a serious anthology of ethical and Gadik literature. This was published as a book, and it is, she published it in Yiddish, and it is, in fact, the first Yiddish book, in fact, perhaps even the first published book that we know of by a woman in jewish history and she is living in poland amazingly and this is really before poland takes off as a center uh, of jewish culture it's just starting to get going and already we see women at the forefront of publishing and writing the other woman that was brought to my attention uh, by someone in the evening class was in fact uh, a very, interesting, and we don't know much about it. This is a very recent discovery of historians, and they're still trying to poke around and find out who she was exactly and what was happening. What we do know about her is her name was Catherine. That was probably an adopted secular name. Rachel was probably her first, her actual given name. Uh, da Costa. Anyone come across Catherine Da Costa? she lived in uh we're talking uh she's born in, she's mostly 18th century she was born in 1679 and i think she dies in 1756 if i recall uh, she is she's living in london she is the first jewish painter that we know of she is a portrait painter she painted miniatures and highly highly regarded in her own time a jewish woman who became at the forefront of what was going on in portrait painting in England in the first half of the 18th century. So a very, very interesting addition to what we've spoken about so far, and I, had I been more aware of them at the time, I would have put them in uh, when we discussed those issues. Yeah, there's not a lot that we know beyond some very, very basic stuff, and there's not many of her paintings that still exist. But, uh, just, well, and when we talk about these women, even if we can't go into depth, just knowing about them, Increases our awareness of how the status of women and the role of women has uh, evolved throughout uh, history. And especially in the last 500 years, what we've seen is the many, many women frustrated from being able to partake in the men's world of, of the intellect, of commerce... Uh, Some women did break through those, but many women, talented women, were diverted into the arts. And that's why we've seen so many women poets and artists and so on. We've looked at women poets, we're going to look at more poets today. But that's quite interesting that uh, we have someone arising already in the visual arts. All right. (laughs) Now today... I'm smiling you're not because I know where I'm going with this we're going to talk about a lot of women and I want us to get kind of a pattern of where we're going Uh, it will be confusing enough for you and imagine how it is for me I'm holding the biographical details of quite a few women in my head and I'm hoping that I can get through as many of them as I can so before we get to the 20th I want to talk about a very, very important Jewish woman. I think extremely important and and someone that perhaps in this country we're not as aware of. An 18th century woman who was born to a very, very established American Sephardic family. We know that the Sephardic families were among the first Jews to arrive in American established congregations. Her great grandmother was already born in New York in the 1750s. So we're talking about someone from very... Start. So by this time, several generations on, the family is still very Jewish. They're not marrying out. They're Jewish. But they're pretty culturally assimilated into establishment American life. And she grows up, gets a good education, as good an education as, uh, as a girl can get in, uh, in North America in a well-established family at the end of the 19th century. And she decides that she will go into literature and become a writer and a poet. And uh, so she does, and she's actually uh, she's born in. Uh, I tell you who who am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, very very good, very good. I'm talking about Emma Lazarus, and Emma Lazarus uh, is born around 1849. And in the 1880s, uh, she's already established herself as a fairly front rank poet. You know, she's corresponding with Longfellow and all these other. American dudes of the 19th century, and she's uh, written a couple of published works, anthologies of her poetry, very respected. And then she reads Mm -hmm. Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, and she is inspired towards an empathy in relation to Russian Jews who are seeking to flee Tsarist Russia and refugees and flocking to America and she goes down to the docks and starts working with these refugees i mean it doesn't just talk about it intellectually she actually gets deeply involved in that and starts reassessing and re-realizing her jewish roots and her jewish identity very very important to her and even is among the first i mean years before herzl is amongst the first to call for a jewish homeland and using her influence and her literary voice to talk about this and then she writes a poem about refugees and about coming to America called The New Colossus. And The New Colossus, which was really written in honor of this amazing statue that the, that the American government had acquired from France and had planted <coughs> uh, you know, at, the, at the entrance of the harbor uh, in New York. And they took her poem, uh, The New Colossus, which includes the line, you know, give me your huddled masses that yearn to breathe free, took that and put it as the plaque on the Statue of Liberty. That is Emma Lazarus. She died quite young, 1887, 1888, I believe, but uh, very, very significant front rank poet, and her words are memorialized today. And that is a Jewish woman. And not just a Jewish woman, a Jewish woman whose entire creative output became completely influenced by her notions of her Jewish identity and her empathy for other Jewish people who were fleeing from from worse situations. So an amazing woman, I think just someone that we should mention. We're gonna talk about a lot of poets, but she is uh, right in the front rank of the women uh, I want to talk about today. There's one woman that some of you may know is really where I wanted to start the 20th century. Although she's really at the end of the 19th, but her influences in the 20th. And I, in in kind of uh, thinking about this talk, I'm just really just amazed. This particular person, but the women that all the women we're going to talk about today are remarkable. But I'm amazed that we just don't know more, and we're not more aware, and we don't actually digest who these women are and just how they influence Jewish history. This is a woman that was born in Germany her name as we now know it and I'm just very interested to see if anyone uh, is familiar this is a seriously influential Jewish woman and I hope by the by the end of this talk so by the time I've gone through all the other women after this woman you will come back and you will realize just how important this woman's contribution is her name is Nahida Ruth Remi Lazarus anyone familiar She was born Anna Maria Concordia. Now, I'm not sure if Concordia is, was her family name or whether that was a name that she was <coughs> given, uh, is one of her given names, but she was born into a very well-respected upper-middle-class German Christian family. She was not born a Jew. But from an early age, with a very, very good education that she was given, and once again, someone diverted into the arts, into writing, found a place for herself in in literature, as a critic and as a reviewer, and also writing her own uh, material. She was attracted to Judaism, intellectually, but that didn't really have a huge effect on her. And she married a guy called Remy, that was his family name, and he died a few years later. And so once she was widowed and, uh, and a bit free, she pursued her writing more and also pursued her interest in Judaism. I'll write her name, Nahida. Now, Nahida was not her name. Nahida was her mother's name, but she adopted her mother's name after her mother died. Ruth, you'll understand why Ruth. Remy, that's Lazarus. <coughs> she wanted to learn more about Judaism and she started going to classes and given this ties into a whole other cultural phenomenon that was happening in Berlin at the time where there was this revival of Jewish culture people were uh, talking about how they wanted to run classes and workshops for people that wanted to know more about Judaism. Judaism in Germany towards the end of the 19th century had become a very very kind of dry and uninteresting topic and yet there was a certain amount of young people that wanted inspiring teaching about Judaism Uh, and there were some older academics and intellectuals who at the end of distinguished careers had decided to go back and learn more for themselves about Judaism uh, and teach and so on so she went to these classes under a retired professor called uh, famous in his own right and it's not the so called Moritz Lazarus and she studied with him for many years and he was much older than her she's only in her 30s and I think he's probably in his 70s 60s or 70s much older but nevertheless a bond developed between them as teacher and pupil she learned a tremendous amount for him became a huge admirer of his edited some of his works and obviously a bond developed between them, a bond that grew into into love and eventually they married. However, before they married and she converted to Judaism, she converted to Judaism with Lazarus' guidance. Now, before she converted, before she married Lazarus uh, in the mid 1890s, she wrote a book called the jewish woman she was still christian she read a book called the jewish woman which expressed her whole philosophy and admiration for the idealized concept of the jewish woman her argument was and this is a huge contribution to a debate that's going to go on till today and beyond about the role of jewish women uh, the spiritual and cultural and religious role of Jewish women in Jewish society she argued that gender is something that really itself is an ingrained facet of human society this is not about equality because men and women are fundamentally different I'm not saying this is an argument everyone's going to buy but that's it the men are men and women are women but just like any other facet of human life gender just like anything else the whole purpose of judaism is to elevate that human concept so you don't reject gender in your pursuit of equality you elevate the concept of gender so that men have things that men do to make them holy and women have things that women do and then she writes very very beautifully about it i mean it's not even jewish yet about what the concept of a jewish woman is so i had a look at the jewish woman which is an amazing text in in the course of the book there are many chapters devoted (laughs) kind of like something like i wish i'd known this before i even began uh, this series it's an unbelievable overview of women in jewish history and all of the obscure amazing women that we have spoken about in this series she talks about in fact she's the one that actually highlighted to me rivka tiktana who i wasn't even fully aware of all of the women that we've spoken about including esperanza Malchi, she talks about she talks about sarah Kopia sulam she talks about sarah the wife of shabtai tzvi she talks, and amazingly I, just, I i wanted to share this this is not going to I, I wanted to share this this is an amazing story that she tells because she talks about some correspondence of the 19th century uh, poet Heine. Some of you will be familiar with Heinrich Heine. He converted to Christianity, a famous Jewish poet. <laughs> and Heine writes somewhere in correspondence to someone, he's writing about his ideal of the Jewish mother. He's talking about a Jewish mother that he knows. And this Jewish mother can't go to sleep at night unless she's done a good turn for someone during the day. She's done a mitzvah, she's helped someone out. Otherwise, that's not a day for her. So Heine was extolling how this concept of the Jewish mother is, this amazing concept. Rami Lazarus points out that, in fact, the mother that Heine was talking about is the mother of Giacomo Birmeier, who is familiar with Giacomo Biermeyer? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Giac- who was Giacomo Biermeyer? Who was mm-hmm. In the first part of the 19th century, huge opera composer. Mm-hmm. Right? And unique because in that entire society, he not only was Jewish, he stayed Jewish. And he was very upfront with his Jewish identity right throughout his career. Huge. And so, so high. R- remy lazarus not highly remy lazarus t- tells this amazing anecdote that on the night it was in paris in 1830 on the night of the opening like the premiere of his most famous spectacular work robert the devil and 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 like the crowds are screaming and storming because it's amazing and it's just finished and you know everybody's standing up to rapturous applause at that moment, someone rushes up to Behemiah with a letter. And it's a letter from his mother. Mm-hmm. And he rips it open, right? And he opens it up. And in that letter, she says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. Love your mother. Right. So she, of course, talks about this is kind of like, you know, this combination of spiritual connection at the same time as drawing these immense wells of nachas and all the rest of it. So I thought it's ironic that during the 20th century, the stereotype of the Jewish mother becomes a kind of a a subject of comedy in a way. Right. Uh, And yet for her not even jewish yet she saw the concept of the jewish mother as the highest expression of ideals in spirituality and talks extensively about how women play this role as mothers as daughters as wives as sisters in every aspect of their existence phenomenally influential book and went on to play kind of a major role in the development of the status of women in Judaism in the 20th century, a woman called Deborah uh, Malamed wrote a book in 1927 that some of you might have seen about Jewish women called The Three Pillars. Anyone seen that book? Okay, that book, The Three Pillars, went on to become kind of like the underlying... Uh, philosophical framework about women for the whole of conservative judaism in america it became a very very well-known book and that's highly influenced by by the book so she marries lazarus uh, lazarus passes away she edits all his things and then she lives into the 20th century but just a remarkable uh, person a convert uh, to judaism that went on to have a serious influence on the on the on the level of women so the, i wanted to start with her because we're going to come back to looking at the role of women in Judaism a little later. But uh, there's two women I need to talk about that just briefly. That really, if I didn't, some of you would be going, well, why didn't he mention her? But these two women are contentious. And I'm mentioning them because they're important. Remember, I said at the very, very beginning of this series, some, we're going to talk about some women that are great because of the contributions they make to human society or Jewish history generally and the fact that there are women is incidental and there are some women who make contributions as women well these women made tremendous contributions as women but they're not always counted as part of Jewish history because Jewish concerns were not necessarily at the forefront of their mind they are world figures if you like but they are jewish by virtue of their birth by virtue of their upbringing which in most cases they rejected in order to throw themselves into uh, human affairs some people are able to take their jewish values and their jewish identity and go into the world and become great and some people need to have some kind of recoil effect against their jewish background in order to become who they are becoming so these two women huge in politics in different parts of the world and for different very very different ideological reasons probably the, the two are and they're both famous and some of you will have heard of at least one or if not both of these women one is of course Emma Goldman and Emma Goldman was regarded certainly for the first part of the 20th century she was known officially I'm talking like by the government as the most dangerous woman in America. She was an anarchist. So she wasn't just an anarchist. She was an anarchist and a feminist. A feminist anarchist or an anarchist feminist. And she, of course, was highly instrumental in coalescing and organizing the anarchist movement in the early part of the 20th century and the late part of the 19th, the early part of the 20th century. Well, remember that it was the anarchists who actually assassinated President McKinley and that in fact uh, she was arrested for that Uh, she didn't play a part in that but she was actually even though she had american citizenship she was deported uh, to russia which where i think she was born Uh, she came back uh, But interestingly enough and if we want to take some pride in the role of jewish women even though her after her childhood her jewish identity was not a significant factor for her if anything she would have been quite probably negative towards Uh, Jewish ideals because she was so rampant in her anarchic feminism but she was and this is something we can only kind of appreciate in today's right on culture if we look back at that she was the first person in America to defend uh, the rights of homosexuals and lesbians so in terms of we talk today about gay rights and the rights of gay people uh, she was the first I mean you can imagine in like what 1905 to get up and start defending the rights of people to sexuality and that people are born different and we must respect their different preferences is phenomenally ahead of her time and ahead of that generation's expression so that that's a very very interesting facet and the other the other extremely uh, acute political figure also a jewish woman who once again not really going into jewish history so much but more into uh, world political history is someone that I'm, um, if you haven't heard of Emma Goldman then you certainly may have heard of this person and that of course is Rosa Luxemburg and I can already hear the yeses and Rosa Luxemburg who we can also talk about completely different political view from Emma Goldman uh, whereas Emma Goldman was an anarchist Rosa Luxemburg was a socialist and a communist, she was in Germany, she was probably the mo- the principal communist activator and theorist right in the early decades of the 20th century. She was, in fact, executed in 1919, about a year after the the First World War, when Germany had a huge crackdown on all of its uh, intellectual and political dissidents in various ways. Germany uh, wasn't just uh, a mess after the Second World War. I can tell you it was certainly a mess after the First World War and uh, Rosen Luxemburg's ideas. But she's regarded by communist theorists as a very, very significant contributor to uh, communist ideas. And uh, certainly in terms of German socialism, is still held by many as an icon of radicalism and uh, rejection of the values of capitalism and the uh, destruction that it, uh, it wreaks on society. So Luxemburg is, uh, is a very, very big figure. So I just wanted to cover these two, because they're Jewish women. And they're very, very important, Uh, but they don't make contributions per se in Jewish history. But now I want to get down to the uh, sharp end because I want to do about 11 or 12 of these women before we have a break. And then we're going to do more. And like I said, not all of these women will interest everyone in this room. But some of them will and some of them will just spark something. And I invite you to do further research. we've talked before in preceding centuries about women who have expressed themselves poetically and so you might think well so many of the great poets women poets in jewish history really belong to earlier ages and sometimes we don't realize that the 20th century was an amazing century for poetry jewish poetry and why would that be? What what is the massive, massive impetus that happens in the 20th century that you think would give rise to a whole revolution in poetry? And just women's well, women's rights is one thing, but we accept but in fact we don't necessarily need to see women's rights okay. to see women in poetry because we've seen women in poetry already since the 16th century. So why well, well I'll tell you and as soon as I tell you you'll go, "Oh, of course." Mm-hmm. Right? But just basic education. True, but women were getting good education. The women that became poets, not all women, we've already seen for a couple of hundred years. No, I'll tell you, I'll tell you where I'm going with this, and you'll understand. It's because in the 20th century we have a new language. The rise of Hebrew. The 20th century is the century of the rise of spoken and written Hebrew. Well, written had been around for a long time, but a total new revival in this language called modern Hebrew that of course Eliezer ben Yehuda basically creates and diffuses and distributes in the very early part of the whole, you know, the first Aliyot, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And so people are speaking Hebrew and the Zionists are speaking Hebrew in Europe, Zionists are speaking Hebrew in Palestine. Hebrew is on the rise. By the time the state's created in 1948, we have a living, breathing, used language that is the language of the population. And we have kids born then that have never spoken any other language. And how do you think that happened within 40 years, if not by miracle? Hebrew, it. So with the rise of Hebrew, there is the rise of a whole body massive body of literature to accompany the revival of hebrew in the 20th century and that doesn't just mean uh, translations and that that, that the, the the translations of all the major classics of western and eastern literature into hebrew is a huge enterprise that's still going but within hebrew itself generic to hebrew we see the rise in the 20th century of modern hebrew poetry And the modern Hebrew novel and so on these are major major topics and within this women are playing a significant part and I need obviously to talk about a few of the most significant Hebrew poets women Hebrew poets because they are at the absolute front row of the rise of Hebrew poetry Some of them will be familiar to you. And when, as I say, you're sitting around those dinner tables and the subject of uh, Hebrew poetry of the 20th century and women writers in Hebrew poetry comes up, there are two or three names that if you don't know them, you're going to look uh, embarrassed. (laughs) So these are the names that you would need to know. If we were to pick one, I can guarantee you that if I did a straw poll right here, of those of you who are familiar with any of the famous, famous hebrew poets of the 20th century that are women there would be one that would come out and that one would be oh, thank god someone said it thank god someone said it very very good very good right that of course would be rachel uh, and rachel uh, she wasn't just born as Rachel. Now the reason the reason you know Rachel the reason Rachel is known is because Rachel's poetry I studied Rachel's poetry for year 12 for my Hebrew matric right that is and in Israel it's Rachel's poetry is compulsory on the curriculum and it's it, and so it is anyone who sits an exam at any level of Hebrew literature will inevitably be given to study a poem of Rachel Rachel was of course rachel uh, Bluestein, and she was born in europe born in 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 russia but her she came she developed i mean she's born around 1890 uh, and she developed a kind of a a zionist yearning as a young girl and already by the time she's 19 she travels with her sister they're supposed to be going on a sightseeing tour of italy but uh, they arrive in Palestine and they don't leave Palestine. Once she gets to Israel, she just falls in love with the place. She's always wanted to be in Israel. She's always or Palestine. she's always wanted to be part of that yearning of the Jewish people for their homeland, etc, etc. Russian Jews seem to have caught that bug particularly bad at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. So she's, so it's about 1909, and she rocks up and she's living in Rohovot. and uh, she's been dabbling in poetry, and now she decides, not only write poetry but she's meeting some of the major figures of the Zionist movement some of its intellectuals some of its creatives you know but Alex still running around the A.D. Gordon she meets. she dedicates her first poem to him and so on so and then she has this major love affair a romance and the love affair writes quite a few poems about this this man and this love affair although it didn't last it was very sad thing for her because it didn't last his name was Zalman Rubashov and anyone know who Zalman Rubashov is? Who did he go on to become? He went on to become Zalman Shazar. Yes, later, obviously, president of the state of Israel, one of its greatest presidents. But as a young man, 1909, he and Rachel were having this thing that didn't last. And Rachel was con- convinced, more or less, by her mentors that uh, she should go and uh, study something. So. But there was nowhere really in Palestine where she could effectively study, so she decided to study agronomy, which you know, agricultural uh, processes and drawing because she was interested in art. And she went to Toulouse in 1913. First World War breaks out. Uh, She ends up having to go back to Russia because she can't get to Palestine, uh, and very, very difficult. She waited till 1919, she got the first boat out of Russia back to Palestine. They were the hardest years for her not only because all she wanted to do every day was just get back to Palestine uh, and she was working with refugees she was enduring very very hard conditions but during that time she also tragically uh, contracted the tuberculosis uh, that would eventually kill her very young but she got back to Palestine around 1919, 1920 but when her tuberculosis developed she was living in Kibbutz de Ganya. They basically told her she had to leave the Kibbutz because she was going to start infecting people. And she went and she lived a very, it's very sad reading the life of Rachel. She's still pumping out poems and people are still reading her poems and going, wow, that's amazing. But uh, she uh, was living this incredibly poor, absolutely nothing existence in some shack in Tel Aviv on the edge there, We barely able to uh, survive. And she was also sick and whatever, and she traveled around a bit, but she died actually in 1930, and she was only 40 years old. Uh, but her poetry is so frontline because it's not simply someone who says, oh, I'll go to Israel, I'll learn Hebrew, and I'll write some poems. She was at the forefront of the what they call the symbolist movement in the development of Israeli poetry, which was reflecting different intellectual trends in poetry that was happening in Europe and so on, getting back to very, very elemental descriptions in words, uh, movement away from flowery language towards much more pure form of, of poetic symbolism. This is, she, she, intellectually as well as artistically, she's right at the forefront of, uh, of, of the world poetry at the time and is one of the major contributors to the revival of Hebrew poetry. I can't speak much more about Rachel, but well, we could go into the type of poetry she's writing, which I will come back to Rachel in a moment, because someone else later is going to take her poetry and put it to music. So, um, The next person we would probably talk about, uh, we can't talk for more two minutes, because otherwise you go below the surface in this person, and it's quite deep, but uh, Leah Goldberg. Wow. Leah Goldberg. So Leah Goldberg, she makes Aliyah also around 1925. I think is when she comes she's born in 1911 and, and Leah Goldberg from a very early age is an absolute Eloi <coughs> she's an absolutely brilliant and in fact she gets a no, no 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 1935 she makes Aliyah because she she gets a PhD in Berlin first you got to understand these people these girls were born in Russia right where they're learning Hebrew where they're learning Hebrew when Rachel gets to, I'm going to give you a Muslim. When Rachel comes to Israel, she doesn't know any Hebrew. There were, you could do classes in Russia. You do classes in Russia, but as people were finding two things one is that the classes were very sporadic, and secondly, because, and certainly after the Bolshevik Revolution, they were almost impossible. And also because the Hebrew that was being spoken there was not necessarily relating to the Hebrew that was being developed in Palestine at the time. It's the same language, but first of all, the pronunciation was different. But Rachel learns her Hebrew from hanging around helping in the kindergarten, so she learns from children. This is someone who goes on to become the greatest Israeli poet. She learns from children. And similarly, Leah Goldberg. How does she? She teaches herself. She teaches herself. And then she goes, I mean, when we talk about, Ah, Hebrew is a bit difficult, these women are driven and they want to have an involvement in this incredible new, uh, I think some of us, all of us perhaps, because of who we are and where we are living and when we are living, we sometimes forget that there was entire sections of the Jewish world at the end of the 19th, the beginning of the 20th century that thought it was nothing short of amazing that People were going now to live in Palestine, to rebuild the land of Israel, to revive the Hebrew language. This kind of amazement in the whole story of the 20th century in Jewish history is kind of a bit lost on us now. The state of Israel is nearly 70 years old. It's a given fact. We Defended ourselves against our enemies. We're a reality in the world. Everyone else can go and shove it as far as we're concerned. Since 1967, we've had Jerusalem, whatever. Hebrew is a given language now in Israel these are astonishing facts so it was astonishing to people so they're driven towards it so Leah Goldberg uh, gets to Israel and 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 takes on various she had a different kind of life from uh, someone like Rachel because uh, news of the fact that this frontline Hebrew writer and intellectual was coming to live in Palestine was already known by the time she got there so she was like the roads were opened and she was given a series of positions prizes and so on it became a major major contributor to the whole she uh, translates she becomes a translator as well she translates war and peace into Hebrew which was, <laughs> was a huge monument <laughs> right but, 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 but you know I'm just telling you this because in Israeli society of the 20th century it was a given. It was a given that women are completely equal to men intellectually. Yep. It's, not, it's not, even a, you know, not even a discussion. And so the fact that, oh, yeah, Leah Goldberg translated war and peace, fine, let's move on. So it's, uh, and, and these women were not only afforded opportunities, it's true, but they were driven to become who they are. All right. I want to talk about uh, this woman uh, is a, I don't know you'd have to be reasonably on top of uh, Israeli poetry but if you knew anything about Israeli poetry well not anything but a little bit more than anything you would have come potentially across a poet called Elisheva anyone heard of Elisheva you've heard of Elisheva what do you know about Elisheva she's good yes yeah, she's very good she's very good right but do you know anything else about her that's interesting? No. Well, her name is Elisheva and She's known as just Elisheva. In fact, she used to sometimes sign her early works as E-Lisheva. But she wasn't born as Elisheva. She was born as Elizaveta Ivanovna Zirkova. <laughs> and uh, she was not Jewish. She was born Russian Orthodox. And she grew very, very interested in Jewish culture, Jewish spiritual life and Jewish languages, Yiddish and Hebrew. In fact, when she first started reading things and she started reading newspapers by herself, she didn't realize there was a difference between Yiddish and Hebrew for a while but that was useful for her because she was able to work out how to read the letters and so on and only after a while did she realize that actually there are two completely different languages and so she sought out in Moscow some of those classes and circles that were discussing Hebrew she writes at great lengths about the different types of teachers that she had the good ones the bad ones the ones who were less than good teachers the ones who tried to uh, molest her the ones that were this the ones that were that it was a very very strange society Moscow at the time one of her teachers she thought this guy was really really good but he got sacked because he was uh, going around Moscow in a summer overcoat and no galoshes when it was raining and that was regarded as scandalous so he was uh, sacked and then uh, you know other things anyway she eventually marries one of the guys hanging around these circles that called Shimon Bichovsky. And in the 1920s, they eventually emigrate to Palestine. Yes, Shimon Buhovsky was Jewish, Jewish, but they had to get married in a civil wedding. They got married in Russia in a civil marriage because they, a Jew couldn't marry a non-Jew in, a, in any sort of marriage. So they got, and they came to Palestine and they were entering. Now, the thing is, it's very, very difficult when you read... Ellie, and she's writing poetry, she's pumping out Hebrew poetry. By now she is a uh, seriously regarded and respected Hebrew poet, and she's pumping out poetry. But the problem is, is and it's very difficult to read her biography, those of you who want to go into uh, Sheva Bakhovsky's biography, because after Shimon died, and it's a bit of a disgraceful episode, really, uh, after he died, she was basically neglected by uh, the society that she had tried to become a part of, and she also lived out her last years in tremendous poverty as well and in fact at some point she was even working in a laundry to try I mean this is someone who for years before had been heralded as uh, this great poet and I don't exactly know why that she never converted to Judaism this is not like Nahida Ruth she never converted to Judaism but she was what you might call a convert to Zionism she was deeply passionate about the Jewish people and about their homeland and about the Hebrew language. And she is buried uh, near Rachel. There was a whole discussion when she died about where she could be buried because she wasn't actually Jewish. And then there were some interventions at the high level and they buried her at uh, the cemetery at Kvotsat Kineret, which overlooks the, the Sea of Galilee where Rachel is buried and a number of other major poets are buried. So you can go there. and On her tombstone is just written uh, Elisheva. And uh, she's there today. And her poetry is at a different, a completely different type of poetry from the poetry of Rachel and Leah Goldberg. They, those poets were mirroring some of the major intellectual movements in literature at the time, whereas Elie was totally off on her own uh, trip. And uh, actually, her poetry uh, attracted quite a lot of criticism from more snobby kind of literary critics and so on because it was too—they regarded it as too basic and too unreflective and whatever. But uh, certain recent reassessments of Elisheva's poetry has shown us that there's phenomenal depth there and a passion and, and a loneliness and a yearning that, that no other poet can capture. So if you get a chance to look at Elisheva's poetry, either in translation, but even, even better in Hebrew, those of you who can do that, you will see what I mean. There's something kind of unique about Elisheva's poetry that you don't see anywhere else. All right. Those would be the three major poets of the Hebrew poets. Now, I know that some of you might be saying, oh, I can't believe we spent all that time just on Hebrew poetry. What an uninteresting topic. But these women are seriously at the forefront. They're not just also Rams. These are the founders of Hebrew poetry of the 20th century. I'm going to add one more, although she's not technically a poet, although she has written her own poetry, she wrote her own poetry, but that, of course, is the amazing, and I think she's amazing, and some of you might share that Naomi Shemer. Uh, Naomi Shemer, who passed away, I think, in the early 21st century. No, why is Naomi Shemer famous? Naomi Shemer is famous because she penned the song Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, Jerusalem of Gold. Naomi Shemer, some of her other songs, she quite often took the poems of Rachel. No one refers to Rachel as Rachel, Blusen, by the way, everybody refers to her as just Rachel. That's how she's known, Rachel. She took some of Rachel's poetry and set them to music. But Yerushalayim Shel Zahav, which was written and, and performed for the first time, by the way, a month before the Six-Day War. And after they captured the Kotel, is she wrote another verse. And it's, it's kind of like become the second anthem of Israel. Yeah, Yerushalayim Shel zahav It's probably the most well-known song, Jewish song of the 20th century. I'm going to make, and there's a, if you look at the words of Yerushalayim Shel zahav and you know Jewish history and you know Jewish literature, there are so many incredible cryptic references in there to various facets of Jewish history. It's really quite an astonishing text. And I'm just going to mention one of them because it relates to something we talked about weeks and weeks ago in this series. The whole concept of Yerushalayim Shel zahav What does Yerushalayim Shel zahav mean? Jerusalem of gold. If you recall if you recall when they were very very poor rabbi akiva said to his wife rachel when they were talking about how they had to give the straw of their own mattress to a poor couple that were having a baby they had nothing else to sleep on he said one day i will buy you a jerusalem of gold to put in your hair Remember, does anyone remember? I talked about that. And he eventually bought her when he became very successful and very wealthy. He bought her a diadem which was like in the shape of Jerusalem, a Jerusalem of gold. And that is a direct reference by Naomi Shemir uh, to, in Jerusalem. So uh, I kind of wanted to bring that because it kind of ties uh, in, in those features. Uh, so, Naomi Shemer, very, very famous Israeli songwriter and lyricist and singer, and someone that is worthy of a mention. I just want to uh, make sure. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, uh, yeah, I know where I want to get up to. I know where I want to get up to in the break. We we should make it because I've just got to talk about uh, uh, two or three more women writers. Some of you who are going, oh, why hasn't he mentioned her? Why hasn't he mentioned her? This person I need to mention because I I don't know whether it's here or the evening class. Someone was um, amazed that I didn't mention this person last week. But I think that they probably belong more in this week. Uh, And that is Gertrude Stein. Look, Gertrude Stein is a complex figure. I don't need to tell you that. Well, let's just go over her basic stuff. I mean, she's born in America. And as a young woman makes her way to Paris and really she's very I'm much more identified with the whole scene that was going on in Paris in the first few decades of the 20th century. And that scene, if you're in that scene, was really all about art and literature. And everyone knew everybody, and there were these incredible salons. Of I mean, uh, uh, her most famous book, which is the Life of Alice Toklas, and you read that, and she talks there about the fact that ah, oh, and one day, I mean, it's funny because all of us, if you know, if you had a time machine, and you could go back in time to one point purely for the purpose of making money, right? I mean, she writes about the fact that ah, oh, and then so and so was telling us about this artist called Cezanne and we went there and he was complaining that he had offered to to uh, sponsor Cezanne and to show his works but no one was buying his paintings would she come and have a look please at the work and maybe buy one or two paintings of this poor fellow right so you can imagine going to a Paris where no one was buying Cezanne's paintings and she was friends with picasso and she was a picasso who painted the famous portrait of her and so she was part of the, and of course she was in a deep lifelong relationship with amazingly another jewish girl from america alice called alice, alice Toklas. and that was the her in fact her first really 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 big book which is uh, an autobiography of alice Toklas, is written by gertrude stein and it's really about gertrude stein But it's kind of through the eyes of Alice, this demure, shy Jewish girl that also had found herself in Paris. And she and Stein developed this lifelong relationship. Stein is problematic. Some of you may be aware. Because she died in 1946. And she never left Paris. And so you say, well, how does that happen? How does someone survive how does a jewish person survive paris from 1940 to 1946 and we're seeing everybody else i mean look last week we spoke about hannah arendt right i mean as soon as the germans are coming into france people are you don't want to be around and yet stein remained in her apartment with her art collection intact with her everything with alice right throughout the war years and that has got a lot to do with the fact that she was highly connected with and in many ways defensive of the whole vichy regime there are many many uh, look it's very you, you know to go over historical figures and start throwing accusations and judgments and asking questions is very very difficult for us sometimes it's necessary to raise those questions but we can't always answer for people but you know on the day that they deported you know 75,000 children from Paris uh, to the camps and uh, how, how do you not know about that? How do you go about your life, uh, your salon artistic effervescent existence uh, and not be aware of what's going on around you simply because you happen to be sufficiently connected uh, that you're in a sense protected a very she came in for some very difficult criticism for that and but she she is nevertheless a significant, writer of the 20th century a novelist the next person i want to talk about might be known to some of you this is a phenomenal story and we don't really have time to go into it but i want to talk for a couple of minutes about irene Nemorovsky. oh good 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 because i think that she's amazing and in fact she's kind of like the a kind of a counterbalance to gertrude Stein. although not really i mean uh, irene Nemorovsky, who was a jewish woman who herself found herself you know living much of her life in paris and decided to write and became this incredible writer she's compared to some of the greatest writers in france by people that now know her work she was incredible but of course and wrote a couple of novels and whatever and she was writing poetry novels and then the nazis came and they so she tried to run from paris but the family was arrested and she and her husband and her their two daughters were arrested by the gestapo and in fact already in 1939 she had they had converted to uh, christianity that was seen by some people as perhaps a safeguard against what was going to happen it didn't help and she the family was captured and one of the gendarmes that had captured her said to the two girls right because the two girls uh, when Mummy and daddy were arrested the two girls said what's happening with us right can we go home and get some things and they were only little girls I'm talking like I think they were like six and nine or something and one of the gendarmes said to the two daughters of Irene right go home get some things and then run and they did and they escaped the war they escaped the fate of their parents Irene died in Auschwitz within a few days of arriving, as we understand it. And the girls in their haste, going back to the house to get a few possessions, grabbed their mother's writings, the manuscripts, and they put them in the case and they took them with them. The war finishes, the girls go and live in different places, America, so on. And the girl who had the writings for years kept them in a drawer and could not look at them because it was too painful to look she thought they contained basically her mother's diary and her thoughts and her last words and whatever and it's only in the 1990s that that someone actually looked at this a publisher looked at them and realized that what was actually in there were two novels amazing phenomenal novels about the 20th century and about what had been happening uh, with Jews in France and so on. And of course, one of those novels was published as uh, Sweet Francais, and that uh, became an extraordinarily um, regarded novel. And all sorts of prizes were awarded to Irene Nemirovsky, but not until 2004, 2005. Then they made a film and so on. And so this is, a, this is a remarkable story about a remarkable woman that had the war not come along, would have been actually right at the forefront Of French literary life really quite astonishing and then of course the last one and I'll just finish on this and then we'll have a break Uh, I'm not going to say too much about this person but of course if we're talking about Jewish female writers of the 20th century then we would have to mention Anne Frank and the story of Anne Frank as one of the most famous Jewish uh, females of the of the 20th century if not perhaps the most famous, really, in some ways, and perhaps she should have been in last week's talk. But I'm putting her in this category of uh, amazing uh, women writers of the 20th century, not through necessarily trying or designing to be a great writer. I mean, Anne was only uh, 15 or 16 when she died uh, in the Holocaust, but her work uh, work will survive uh, time beyond just about any other writer, of the 20th century because her experiences as a child in Amsterdam with the occupation of the Nazis and is a story that is universal in the spiritual fight against uh, tyranny and oppression and Anne Frank doesn't need much more for me to say about it and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. But those three are a unique group of writers interestingly all writing around the same time and affected by the war and reacting to the war in different ways. So let's take a break. When we come back, it'll be a little less heavy. We've still got a lot of amazing women to talk about. And we're going to go back a bit in time and then forward. I'm asking everybody to come back and sit down for two more minutes. I'm, I'm very, very sorry. If I don't speak about this person for two minutes, we won't be able to do after the break. And, I, and some of you are actually going, I can't believe you didn't mention this person. I promise you will only take two minutes. Everybody just wants the bathroom and a cup of tea. I'm aware of that. But give me two minutes, right? Because if we're talking about writers this is i'm holding 25 women in my head you have to understand that if we're talking about if we're talking about writers and poets and really let's talk about poets because i knew as i'm telling you this as a poet i knew i hadn't discussed and please give me two minutes because this is so important right and of course hannah senes and the amazing thing about hannah senes is that if she is really uh not only a very interesting poet, but she is, of course, S-Z-E-N-E-S. It's a Hungarian surname, Jewish surname. Uh, She is, of course, probably the most uh, famous, one of the most famous martyrs in Israeli or Jewish military history of the 20th century. She was, in fact, a poet since childhood, and she loved Hebrew. Her family came from Hungary. She was born in 1921. So there's a very good chance that had not happened, she would still be with us. You never know. But she came came to uh, Palestine in around 1940. uh, And despite being a poet, immediately got involved in the whole, you know, setting up of Jewish society in Palestine. And of course, uh, joined the Palmach, the early military and so on. Uh, The really key thing about Hannah is that she was one of a number of Jewish Paratroopers that were parachuted into Hungary in 1944 in an attempt to save Hungarian Jewry from being sent off to Auschwitz. This is this is an act of phenomenal bravado. What well, you've got like three quarters of a million Jews in Hungary; they're under threat of deportation, and you send in 37 commandos. Now that could have been amazing had it uh, managed, it. but unfortunately, by the time they got there, it was already too late. And Hannah famously uh, was captured she was actually one of the uh, commandos who insisted that they could try and continue in some form the mission the others wanted to disband it because it was already pointless she said no we have to do something but she was captured and for weeks they tortured her they found on her the british radio british made radio with which to communicate with other they joined up with a partisan group and they, they wanted to know the names of her collaborators, the names of the other people in the partisan group, the names of the other commandos, what the frequencies were on the radio, how they could contact them. She, apart from her name, she never gave up one piece of information and they tortured her with every conceivable torture every single day and eventually they executed her. Even in her cell, she was writing poetry there is a poem etched into the wall of her cell it's a poem that's very very difficult to read it's about how she thinks she's lost she rolled the dice and looks like she's lost and who knows if she'll ever see the warm sunshine again etc it's a very difficult poem to read but phenomenal very very fascinating poet and and just a person of immense courage and dedication and uh, who, who knows how any of us would have reacted in that situation. But just uh, so, so kind of like a, a parallel, so Martha is a soldier and a poet. Uh, Hannah Senish, who we could talk about a lot more, but is someone that I needed to mention. Let's have a break.
0: You're listening to Collected Talks of David Solomon. Your support can really make a difference. If you enjoy these lectures, please consider rating or reviewing this podcast or simply telling others who may be interested. Now, let's get back to the lecture.
1: This next part which I really have a lot of women I want to try and get through before the end is really a different kind of concept I want to start looking now at a very particular subject that I think is important going forward so the last half of, of this last talk I want to actually identify a theme and that theme will be of interest to some of you not to all but it's it's worthy of talking about nonetheless uh, because uh, there have been some incredibly important developments and contributions In the Jewish world in the last hundred years precisely towards the religious status of women in Judaism I think that those of you who've sat with me through all these seven talks will know that the ultra conservative Orthodox perspective on the role of women in Jewish religious affairs is uh, completely out of place with the major tenets of Judaism and uh, as it has unfolded historically, and is at variance with what we have seen at different times. Every facet of history has shown that women can rise to the highest levels, uh, not just intellectually or creatively, but in fact in terms of their input into uh, the religious and the spiritual dimensions of Jewish life and that of course is something that has been fully reappraised in the 20th century uh, i i pointed to the work of, of nahida ruth remy lazarus it's not like she was calling uh for uh, female rabbis quite the opposite but she was calling for uh an under- a deeper understanding even by women themselves of the of the spiritual role of women in jewish life but for many women that's not enough Many women feel alienated by the traditional, in some places and times, traditional lack of educational opportunities given to women, and certainly the opportunities for women to fully express themselves at the highest levels of rabbinic leadership, and let alone uh, in religious services and so on. Anybody who's ever been to a shul and uh, sat behind a mechitza and uh, looked at the unfolding of a religious service that is Primarily uh, by men and for men is and and feels excluded as a result of that because they want to participate in the synagogue and they want to participate in communal life I will know what I mean that is a complex discussion it's a complex discussion it's not simple but in an age where gender is in a sense being broken down and the opportunities afforded to people in in religious and communal life these are important issues so there's two or three women i want to look at the first woman i want to look at was mentioned to me in the break and in fact i it's not in the notes because i didn't think of it before but you mentioned it to me and i'm going to touch upon her briefly it is of course sarah schneider i think that's how you spell it there's different spellings she she's born in poland in the late 19th century 1883 but after the war after the first war she's a student of Shimshon raphael hirsch the famous german rabbi She was a, a devotee of his writings and thoughts and she believed passionately as a result of her own experiences that women girls who were going to become women uh, deserved a far superior jewish education than the one that they were currently receiving in europe at the time and she started uh, kindergarten and from there she started a network of girls schools called base Yaakov uh, that is now a very famous chain of Orthodox uh, schools right up to high schools right throughout America Israel and other places and base Yaakov became kind of like a byword for uh, women to receive not just a high school education per se but a proper solid Jewish education not a Jewish education that grew up on misperceptions and just very very basic superficial knowledge because that's all women needed to know but a proper textually driven uh, Jewish education now that's still very much within the orthodox world it's not like girls there are being taught Talmud and no one's being encouraged to become a rabbi but they are given a proper Jewish education and so that's uh, that that's a huge contribution yeah yeah yeah. secular as well Yeah, secular as well so on the one hand it affords them a high school education but the emphasis is almost it's like a a yeshiva college type arrangement but for girls man was aimed at giving girls a much better level of education the other uh, a couple of women one that i'm just going to talk about briefly because um it's her who is familiar with lily montague so lily montague british very very well born semi kind of well-to-do aristocratic family in fact her her cousin was herbert samuel who became a governor of palestine and so on and she grew up in a well-to-do household given a good education in a very traditional orthodox home where the values of judaism were much impressed especially in terms of philanthropy and doing good and whatever but constantly constantly frustrated by her lack of access to the experiences and religious events that boys and men were participating in and seriously felt hampered in her ability to express herself and also in the outlook of Judaism that was emerging in some of the more uh, sectarian ways. She believed uh, that religion really is uh, in a sense a personal relationship between a person and God but it should it, so it's very particular but it should have A universal outlook and ultimately a bit like Mendelssohn would have argued that the value of a religious life is uh, really understood by the way that one acts and by the way that one lives and her outlook was immensely universal. Anyway, as a result of all these frustrations being a very, very talented woman and a very, very well connected woman, she began what was going to go and become liberal Judaism in the context of British life. Reform is a whole other thing in Germany, in America, but in the English context it was known as liberal Judaism, but also instrumental in starting what went on to become the World Union of Progressive Judaism, of which I think she served as its first president and so on. So a very, very instrumental figure. But she herself remained pretty orthodox and traditional all her life, similar to the way Mendelssohn had in the 18th century, but was very much a proponent Of dynamic changes within the Jewish world and in fact if if we can't affect it within what's known as the Orthodox world then there has to be some way in which we can effect these changes and if it means starting a whole new mode of Judaism and that's a very sensitive point in the early 20th century when uh, especially after the First World War when these things really start getting going we kind of take progressive Judaism for granted today but it had a very very complex and difficult history and lily montagu's involvement in it she's a fascinating figure and sat on just about every conceivable philanthropic board you can think of in the uk and obviously she was decorated by the you know by royalty and so on A very very established and respected figure obviously obviously not without her privileges in life but used those to uh, raise the cause of women to all to the course of Jewish history to really uh, single-handedly affect those things is really quite amazing and the uh, another woman that I want to talk about in that sphere early on early on <sighs> this woman is remarkable remarkable for several reasons because she was remarkable but also remarkable because she may not have been known if not one a bit like Irene Nemorovsky, she may not have been known except for later historical circumstances that suddenly realized who she is and I'm wondering if how many of you have heard of this person Uh, she is Regina Jonas she is the first woman to be ordained as a rabbi In Germany when I say ordained as a rabbi she was working within the framework of uh, reform or progressive Judaism we're not yet at Orthodox rabbi women rabbis being ordained at this point but uh, she was a brilliant student and she was enrolled they allowed her to enroll in the rabbinic academies in Berlin at the time in the 30s they accepted women but all the women that were studying there were studying to get teaching qualifications but not rabbinic qualifications but she persuaded them to allow her to be enrolled in the rabbinic program and she went right through the rabbinic program and when she got to the end of the rabbinic program including having written a thesis which was required for rabbinic uh, appointment she wrote her thesis on the subject of can a woman become a rabbi? She wrote her dissertation on that and her dissertation was marked and was approved and whatever. And yet, and it was a, it was a dissertation based on traditional sources, halachic sources, talmudic sources. And she argued quite cogently that women can become ordained as rabbis. The thesis was passed, but when it came down to it, no rabbi at the academy would ordain her. Even at the highest levels, you know, Leo Beck and these guys, they were saying, no, 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 no! it would cause far too much contention with the Orthodox and so on if we ordained a rabbi. And eventually, eventually, one liberal rabbi in Germany gave her ordination. And so she kind of became the first female rabbi. And then the Nazis came. And everybody, of course, all the intellectuals were shipped off. And she spent quite some time, maybe even a year or two at Theresienstadt. And Theresienstadt was not at that stage a death camp. It was a labor camp. And a number of intellectuals, even amongst those who survived the war, were actually uh, at Theresienstadt. And at Theresienstadt, she gave lectures. And she helped set up a center to help other people that had just been shipped there. She would regularly go down to meet the trains and to help people who were suffering shock and disorientation when they got off the trains. And there in Teresa that she was with people like Viktor Frankl and other great intellectuals and Jewish minds that were there. And she was highly regarded and she contributed greatly to this center they set up in Theresienstadt, an education center where she would give these lectures. I think she gave about 24 lectures in Jewish subjects. And then at some point in around 1944, I believe she was, uh, might have been early, might have been 42, 42 or 44, she was sent to Auschwitz and where she died. Now, amazingly, None of the people that were with her in Theresienstadt wrote about her at all in their reminiscences and recollections of the war and the labour camps. Frankel didn't, Beck didn't, and none of these these big guys who uh, became famous wrote about her. And once again, she was kind of discovered by accident later on when some of her writings or references to her were discovered amongst uh, some of the records kept by the Germans themselves and they then opened up a whole field of inquiry and discovered uh, exactly who she was. Uh, So Regina Jonas is kind of like the first woman ordained a rabbi in the in the 20th century but remarkable and what they've even tried to reconstruct some of her ideas and her thoughts and her writings and so on but a life spent not allowing disappointment and disillusionment to get in her way she constantly strove to achieve this this absolute articulation of the fact that women can participate fully in rabbinic leadership and that is going to be a theme that's really going to (laughs) come back in many ways but before we go back to that theme i just want to talk about a woman who is generally regarded as the greatest rabbinic traditional textual scholar of the 20th century and that of course is oh by the way by the way just as a matter of I, i really like the fact that lily montague right when she was studying she really really wanted to study uh, and she found a teacher in London. Her teacher in Bible, uh, so this might mean something to some of you and some not, her teacher was Rabbi Simon Singer, who is the guy who translated the Singer's Prayer Book. He was her teacher. i think thinking, oh, that's pretty cool. right? I've always been a big fan of the Singer's Sidur and the translation. Anyway, but the biggest scholar probably of the 20th century in women's scholarship in Torah, orthodox understanding of traditional texts is without a doubt Nechama Leibovitz. Nechama Leibovitz was a phenomenon. It's no question. She is the only woman this is both an amazing uh, amazingly great thing but also amazingly appalling thing. But she's the only woman that has managed to achieve a level of Uh, respect and non-contempt from the male rabbinic orthodox world she is regarded uh, universally as a torah scholar she was born in 1905 her brother is of course Yeshaya leibovitz the famous israeli philosopher and they grew up in germany Uh, she studied uh, in berlin at the university of berlin and did a phd there she was studying at the university of berlin at exactly the same time that some of the other greats of 20th century Orthodox Judaism were studying at the University of Berlin, notably Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who went on to become the Lubavitcher Rebbe. These guys were all at the same time as Leibowitz, they were all there. But in in around about 1930, the day after she handed in her PhD, uh, she emigrated to Israel where she lived kind of like what was striving to be an ordinary life, but at the same time she was uh, teaching, and her teaching was becoming ever more and more popular. For decades she ran this system where she would stencil a series of questions on the weekly Torah reading to anyone who wanted it, and they would write uh, their answers and send them back to her, and she would mark every single one individually. This went on even when the number of Things that she was posting out were in the thousands. She acquired huge numbers of students and then started who then started to collate her insights into Torah and ancient commentaries and medieval commentaries and uh, compile them in anthologies and her writings are extensively published and many many people were fortunate many people that I know even I wasn't but many people I know are fortunate to um, have studied directly under her when I was studying in Yeshivot in Israel uh, She was around and there were people I knew that were going to her classes I just never uh, availed myself of those opportunities I did avail myself of other opportunities I can assure you, but that's one that I regret not having at least gone to her classes But massive so it doesn't and what surprised me always about the is that even if you went to some of the And some of the the most extreme extremely closed ultra Orthodox Rabbinic environments, you would still be able to mention the name of Chama without having people spit at you, even though she was a woman and a Torah scholar. Was the one kind of you know? It's a bit like Bruria in the Talmud. So they're saying, okay, and her method was more than just becoming a great scholar in her own right. She revolutionized. She actually revolutionized the entire methodology of 20th century Torah study, going back to the classical commentaries and working out things. Uh, using just the text many people have have written on that and her extensive influence Uh, some of you may have heard the famous expression what's bothering Rashi yeah to to look at a commentary on a piece of uh, Torah text and ask yourself fundamentally the question why what is the question inside that verse that leads to this particular commentator having to say what they needed to say It might seem like a very, very simple thing, but it comes back to a total existential microscopic focus on the words themselves uh, and on what's in the text. It's a very, very interesting approach and has been immensely fruitful, not just for her students, but right across the the whole field of Jewish textual study. I can't say enough about Nechama It's very, very transformational. And then... Uh, one of the students, one of the students of Nehama Leibovitz, uh, the, many, many students, but of her students, one woman you would have to say is the most influential and significant in the promotion of women's rights in Jewish life in the 20th century is, of course, Blue Greenberg. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Bloomberg Greenberg, uh, once again, traditional Jewish home, absolutely everything normal about it except that that's the problem it was normal and she realized that there were experiences that she simply was not having purely and only because she was a woman as a young woman she was allowed by her family to spend a year in israel she's studying You know, as girls do today, she studied under Nechama Leibovitz. She wanted to stay in Israel and continue studying under Nechama Leibovitz. But her family made her come back and was told that's just not something a nice Jewish girl does. She realized that had she been one of the sons in the family, that would have been totally encouraged. As She saw in the synagogue that there were so many different ways in which she was denied input into those experiences and out of born out of that frustration she threw herself into a series of researchers and lectures and influence In other words, eventually she founded this organization known today as Jofa, which is the jewish orthodox feminist alliance she has tried in all of her writings and speakings to bring together basically is there a way in which we can bridge these two very important movements judaism and feminism not just women's rights, but active, proactive feminism, is there a way in which we can bring those two together to create true equality for women without compromising halakha? Is there a way in which Jewish law can work towards that? And she has got this very, very famous saying that has become a dictum for Joppa. Right? And do you know what it is? No. Very good. Where there's a rabbinic will, there's a halachic way. Where there is a rabbinic will, there is a halachic way. And much of her writing and thought has been to ground some of the major discussions that are taking place in the Jewish world day by day, even as we speak. Things are changing in front of us. When you read the writings of people like Blue Greenberg, right, who is not coming from, it's like, oh, fair enough, Regina Jonas that they can put her in the progressive basket. Lily Montague also, Nahida Ruth, Remy Lazarus, different kind of thing going on. But once you get to the point where you're reading uh, things like Blue Greenberg, you're realising that she's right. And you're realising that she represents the future. And it's only a question of when. All right. I want to talk now about three very special women. I really wanted to get here before the end of this series. Three very special women I want to talk about who really belong in a group. I'm just going to spend a couple of minutes on this because I think it's amazing, very significant, is that in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we have had three Jewish women in space. And of course, the first Jewish female astronaut, who was in fact the first Jewish American of either gender, was of course Judith Resnick. And Judith Resnick, very, very interesting, oh, brilliant, and she went on to work for NASA and uh, went in space and then came back in and her second space trip was tragically killed on board the Challenger that blew up in 1986, those of us who recall. And it was a very tragic end to a very amazing career. Uh, and she was, you know, she was young. The thing is, one um, interesting thing about Resnick's legacy, and of course many uh, tributes have been paid to her and so on, but there is a crater on the moon named Resnick after her. And So whereas we looked at an asteroid named after Rachel Van Hagen, there is a crater named after Judith Resnick. I'm not sure if any other Jewish women have a crater named after them. The second, of course, is Ellen Baker. And... Ellen Baker is actually interesting not only because she went into space, Jewish girl went into space, uh, but also because her mother would almost crack this list. Her mother is Claire Shulman, and Claire Shulman was the first woman, let alone Jewish woman, the first woman uh, to become the president, which is kind of like the equivalent of mayor of a major New York City borough. So she was the president of Queens for many years, like a, a huge figure in a New York City politics went on to become the mayor of Queens, basically the, the, the position is called president, the president of the whole of the city council of Queens and Queens itself, if it was a city by itself, would be a city of several million people. Mm-hmm. Her daughter, Ellen, went on to become an astronaut and went into space. And the third one I think is Marsha Ivans. These two are obviously still alive and just worth mentioning because space itself uh, is interesting and that's also kind of a future direction of humanity going into space. And right from the get-go, we've had Jewish women in space. We didn't have to wait around for decades, saying, oh, when's a Jewish woman going into space? They were right there from the start. Uh, Judith Resnick was in fact the second Jew to go into space. The first was a Russian cosmonaut of, you know, uh, every second Russian cosmonaut's gonna be Jewish, whatever, but certainly the first Jewish woman to go into space. Now, at the end of the 20th century, one of those big things, did a huge survey on who they regarded as the 20 most powerful and influential business people from the 20th century. And on that list was only one woman. And that woman happened to be a Jewish woman. And it was, of course, Estee Lauder. Now, Estee Lauder... Her original name she was born in, she was born in Queens, and we just spoke about Queens and she was born in New York. Her original name wasn't Estée, it was Easter.
0: Easter. No,
1: it was Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, right she was only called Josephine at the last minute, and her parents were going to call her Estée, be after her father's aunt, right and so even though she, they gave her the name Josephine, when she was growing up, she had the nickname Esty. And when she was old enough, older, and was already after she'd started her whole emporium range, uh, she and known as Esty, Esty lauter Lauder, actually, she changed the name to Lauder, yes. and she changed her first name from Esty to Estée, with a little French thing to make it look whatever. So Estée. Now she married, she married... Uh, joe louder and she was helping out in the family business i think her father had i think it was a hardware store or something like that and then she was started helping out an uncle who was into making different types of cosmetic creams and so on and eventually uh she took over that business from him but really really amazingly kind of single-handedly developed there's there's one cream in the early days that she called it her super rich for everything cream and uh, she took that round and uh, everywhere in New York and then eventually got it into some of the big, you know, Saxon Fifth Avenue and uh, some of the big department stores in New York and eventually Harrods in London and eventually built it up. The most amazing turnaround of a product for her was this. Well, I find this interesting. This is going into the kind of history of cosmetics in the 20th century. It's not really my thing, but what I did (laughs) find interesting was the fact that with Estée Lauder is that one of her early products was this realization that, that women were wearing perfume and they were taking like one drop and putting it like behind each ear you know like that and then they got and perfume and she thought ah oh, what if instead of selling the something they just use a couple of drops at the time right if I sell a product that they use as a bath water then they'll be using a whole bottle of it at a time right and she sold a perfume that could be put into the bath so that you have your bath and your perfume at once and you come out fully fragranted as though this was a 20th century idea. You think that the Romans never thought of this, right? But for her, for the 20th century, this was a chiddish, this was an innovation and sales just went through the roof. This is already in the in the 30s and 40s mm-hmm. by the time you get to the 70s she's already uh, in the 80s she's already Estee Lauder and her uh, company today is worth literally billions of dollars I think their turnover last year was something like 11 or 12 billion dollars it's one of the largest cosmetic companies in the world all started single-handedly by Estee now run by the well now run well it took it was taken over by Leonard Lauder and then his son William Lauder is now the CEO I believe her other son ronald Lauder, who i had the privilege to meet he uh he's a philanthropist, he's a philanthropist but also very very involved in the jewish world very involved in jewish politics for he was reagan's ambassador to austria and then Doesn't he, have the schools in poland he has schools not only in poland he has a, fam- a very big school in vienna as well i've taught at that school in vienna and so on so sorry and Hungary, right across Europe. So there's a Lauda Foundation. But that's all. That I mean, yes, he's impressive, but really it's hers. Yeah, it all comes from the immense fortune and influence that, uh, of, of Estee Lauda. who's a remarkable woman and shows, once again, you know, we're talking about poetry, we're talking about going to space, talking about this and all that. But in the world of commerce, also huge uh, things that have done. I've got two or three minutes remaining. And I just want to very, very briefly talk about something that I put on the end of last week's notes but i didn't get to speak about it and then i realized that really this brings us all the way back and can put it um just at the end and i realize i've left myself with less than five minutes but uh, i just want to discuss the 21st century in the light of the theme that i was talking about earlier about this uh, idea of uh, rabbinic ordination something that really was at the forefront of the quest of people like regina jonas and others blue greenberg has also spoken about this and towards the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st, there have been some very, very serious moves uh, to try and really, really kind of move this forward, this idea that women can become rabbis, not just in progressive uh, communities and conservative Judaism, but within orthodoxy. There is no impediment to women becoming rabbis other than the resistance of men. And it would appear that the first woman to have been ordained within an orthodox context it didn't emerge till later and it's actually someone who's a friend of mine and I wrote to her last week saying I was going to mention her in one of my talks but if she found out the rest of the company in which she was mentioned in the list she probably wouldn't talk to me again but it is of course a woman called Mimi very good Mimi Fagelson Mimi is a Hasidic uh, rabbi she's an amazing Person, amazing intellect, very very spiritually gifted, a speaker, a teacher, a counselor. She was given smicha by Shlomo Kalbach, uh, by Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, the kind of New Age rabbi of the 60s and 70s, uh, and she got smicha from him not too long before he passed away. I think in the late 80s um, she got smicha from Shlomo Kalbach, but it wasn't a fact that was revealed. She revealed it in an interview in uh, in the year 2000, and uh, since then. People have looked at her as being the first Orthodox female rabbi, but she wasn't outed as such for quite a while, and also um, didn't become as celebrated as the next one, which didn't happen till 2006. Now you might say, oh, 2006 is only 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, but that's that's how recent we're talking. We are we are living now at a cutting edge in Jewish history in in terms of these people, Chaviva Ner David. Haviva Ner David was given smicha by a rabbi, an orthodox rabbi in the old city in 2006. What does it mean to get rabbinic ordination? I just just want to clarify that for one second. What does it mean? Jewish rabbis are not priests. They're teachers. Yeah. And they are teachers and they are deciders of Jewish law. They're not priests. They're not given the right, say, in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Oh, now you're an ordained priest. You can do sacraments. So you can marry and you can do this. Anything like that in Judaism can be done by anyone without being a rabbi. You don't need to be a rabbi to be a mesader kiddushin in Erechupa, to marry someone. You don't need to be a rabbi to run a service. There's no mass by which you have to have some specific ordination. The key point behind rabbinic ordination is to answer questions of Jewish law. It's to be qualified and ordained by rabbis to say, if a person comes to you with a question on Jewish law, are you equipped to provide a direction for them on what they should do there's also the whole aspect of teaching because rav also implies a teacher but the primary cutting edge of it is on the concept of jewish law that is why all the tests for rabbinic ordination whether they're in the form of direct oral tests or whether they're in the form of written theses or whatever they are are about answering questions of Jewish law. Are you familiar with the sources? Do you know where to go to find the answers for these types of questions and so on? That's what qualifies a person. So when someone like Haviva Ner David gets qualified as a rabbi, it means that she has sat and studied those parts of Shulchan Aruch that are required for study for those seeking rabbinic ordination. You would be amazed at your local rabbi you would probably be amazed at what he does know, but you'd also be amazed at what he doesn't know. Because <laughs> the sections of Shulchan Aruch that are re- mandated for your most basic level smicha, your most basic level rabbinic ordination, are not that massive. <laughs> and most of them focus on, in your De'ah, on questions of Kashrut. That's what most of them uh, have to do. And funnily enough, we're talking about kashrut, you're you're going to get a much more enlightened answer if you actually ask a woman who deals with kashrut all the time. Um, Then we have this massive development in around 2006 that a very bold but nevertheless controversial rabbi in America called Rabbi Avi Weiss begins an academy. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a Torah academy to train women that was back in rome in the in the 16th century remember all that so he opens an academy for women to train women to become rabbis like a proper full-on yeshiva at level of rabbinic study called yeshivat maharat and in fact vice first vice's first uh, smicha was given uh, to a woman called uh sarah horowitz sarah uh, is now the dean of Yeshivat Maharat. After Sarah Horovitz's smicha, <coughs> the other Orthodox rabbis, the whole of the <coughs> Council of Orthodox Rabbis in America went spakactic. All of the uh, Orthodox organizations came down and said, This is a complete departure from normative Judaism. You are not to ordain any more women, blah, 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 blah. Um, he reached some kind of compromise with them, although he resigned from the thing. But Yeshivat Maharat, Avi Weiss, the yeshiva maharat is still going and i'm going to end on this point because this point is really about the future and i'm going to ask you all to do this if you get a chance if you're remotely interested in this topic go to the website of yeshivat maharat it's on the notes m-a-h-a-r-a-t maharat yeshivat maharat maharat is the title of the git rabbis vice called horovitz a after the controversy that ensued from that, all of the subsequent ordinees are called Maharat, uh, but Hurwitz retains the Rabbah title. She is the Dean of Yeshivat Maharat. Go to the website of Yeshivat Maharat. Have a look at Their candidates for ordination the ones that have received ordination and even the ones that are in the years coming up they've got the class of 2017 the class of 2018 the class of 2019 but go to the class of 2014 go to the class of 2015 go to the class of 2012 have a look at the biographical notes of the women that are getting smicha it will blow you away there are no men in the world Who are as qualified and who are doing what these women are doing. There is no yeshiva in the world that is producing male rabbinic graduates with these kinds of CVs. These women are so many light years ahead that the boys don't even know these things are possible. I'm talking about, wait, go and find, if you prove me wrong, go and find me where these guys are. Maybe, maybe the only place you might find a similar thing is perhaps Yeshiva University, but even there, now, uh, first of all, I want to thank all of you, not only for coming back today, but for sitting through this seven part. We've looked at the dramatic course of women in Jewish history. Right back to the Bible, what we have seen is there is, ideally and in potential and especially for our generation no ceiling in jewish life that women can't break through women have been rulers and monarchs and scholars and warriors and prophets and intellects and poets and writers and business people and in every sphere Of not just general life but Jewish life itself women are able to participate at the absolute forefront that is the message that we are going to take into the future and that is hopefully the message or the idea that has been born out of this very what's been for me a very very enjoyable series on women and Jewish
0: thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the talk For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.